This is going to be a whole new sound. You'll notice, Sophia, you're so, we're so happy that you got to come in new because sound. it's oh a my bigger gosh. sound. Yeah. yeah. Do you notice it in your voice? Like, Whoa. Yeah, Brent's really been obsessing this. I love it. He's really oh. been working on it. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. That is a board. Look at that thing. Jeez. You so fly what, a plane with that. So <laughs> I know, nerd, I'm such a big basketball fan, and I'm so devastated about the Trailblazers. I really am. Just Whoa. because when I first moved here, the first year that I moved here, 92, it yeah. was the Blazers, was it was their championship year. And what it did to the fabric of the city, like that we could all kind of have something that we all agreed was fun and took us out of our everyday lives. Totally. So... The reason I'm talking about it is because since game two, I have been saying I think that something's wrong with Damien. He doesn't look right. His totally. face looks checked out. Like, I don't know why it, nobody's talking about this, but it feels like something's wrong with him. Yeah. And then finally, the report comes out that he's been playing with separated ribs. Separated ribs. So my thing is, I feel like shit today in my stomach, mm. but I'm still here because I love what we do here. Aww. Yeah. That was a little you know, I don't know. Probably I tried to cook oysters last night and I <laughs> that might not have anything to do with the Blazers. It's probably oysters. No, you but know, the did you about... see that he played through? He oh, just yeah. kept and never, playing through. And never said anything about the pain I know. or any of that. You know, I was feeling really bad that we were up in two different games and then the Warriors found another gear and beat us. But then I thought. Other than the Eastern Conference champion, yeah. every other team in the NBA would like to get beat up by the Warriors this late in the season because right. they're all sitting at home watching the games. Yeah, so it's all perspective taking. So yay for us that we're actually in the series, right? And also that um, because I've learned from you guys that you just look forward to the stuff that you really want to do in your life and you don't focus on how crappy you feel. True. That Jenna, you have this I'm look of like a happy deer <laughs> in the headlights. I, I do. NBA is basketball. No, I understand the NBA. I just don't follow the NBA. I'm much more a college sports fan. Oh, I like college sports yeah. too. Yeah, I feel yeah. like once they get to the point where they're making millions of dollars, they're just too irritating Careful. for me in their real Careful. life. Yeah. yeah. Except for the Blazers. Yeah. Yeah, well. I, hmm. I am just a fan because I love to do anything that helps me numb out, and black basketball <laughs> helps me numb out. It's a lot and better than white wine. And welcome to Beyond Well. <laughs> yeah. Solutions to live better. That's what we're Welcome about. to Beyond Well. Actually, you know what I really like about this is that you guys have helped me decide that we need an open and a close. We need to tell people who we are, yeah. what we do, and why we're here. And this is a program where we listen, we try to reflect, and we're providing tools for better living. The one question that I had uh, for Sophia Shalmiev is, are you okay being here today? Yeah. Wait, are we, is this, is this, really, is this the, sh has the show been going on? Yeah. I'm oh, so sorry. I'm so confused. We like to sneak up on you. We do. Sophia is a writer. She's a feminist. She's the mother of two. She's an incredible, I think, spokesperson for people who have come to the United States under really difficult circumstances. And I've been thinking about you and your beautiful book, Winter Mother Winter, for so long because there's so many people right now that are in this immigrant status. And I want you to describe for people, first of all, your background growing up in Leningrad. 
Yeah, so I was born in 1978 um, in uh, the Soviet Union uh, when that ta- that city was still called Leningrad, and uh, the Soviet Union under. Gorbachev, the Soviet Union that I grew up in, was actually kind of an interesting country that was um, trying to find its way towards um, democratic socialism. And Werner Herzog actually just put out a documentary about Gorbachev that's at Cinema 21 right now. I just saw. Um, and Gorbachev was this incredible leader that believed in glasnost and perestroika so that people can finally have um, a voice and access. And um, I, in some ways, had a really magical childhood in a non-capitalist country. Um, And in other ways, it was, you know, still a difficult place to live because it was really anti-Semitic and um, we didn't always have enough food or or resources. And I grew up without um, a mother around. My father raised me. I just love what you just said. In one way, I had this magical childhood. And yet, when I'm reading your book, I'm kind of focused on the fact that your mom is a severe alcoholic, that your father is a domestic abuser in some circumstances, including to you. So I'm thinking, how incredibly resilient of you to say, on the one hand, I had this magical childhood. But the, the alcoholism that your mother suffered was a huge factor in you actually making your way eventually to the United States. Would you tell people why that happened? Yeah, I mean, generational poverty and uh, generational substance abuse and so unpalatable in women. You know, the men that came back from war, they were kind of like, we were allowed to uh, feel sad and sorry for them and honor them. And we allowed them to be violent. We allowed them to be alcoholics. We allowed them to be absentee parents. But the women who had stayed around and did all of the work while the men were war, um, you know, thank goodness the Red Army on May 9th um, (laughs) killed fascism for all of us. But yeah, the women really suffered. And um, my my mother was just another woman in her generation that was an alcoholic. And my father eventually just stole me away from her because she lost her parental rights. And when he wanted when we got refugee visas to leave, he just scooped me up and left. I want to bring um, Drs. Jenna Lejeune and Dr. Brian Goff in here because one of the themes uh, uh, in Sophia's book that I think is so strong is the loss of a parental figure, um, especially a mother. Uh, She's just beautiful writing, but she does this brilliant thing where she assembles these kind of other mentors around her, feminist women, gay men, artists. Um, She has this cadre of people who help in some ways form who you became. And I want to just talk about, first of all, losing a parental figure in the same traumatic way that she did, and also what brilliance and kind of resilience she showed in being able to go, look, I I think it's really wise, like tools for living that you had without even... Without even yeah, saying if culture it. alienates you, you can make your own culture. Totally, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, Sophia is this beautiful example of the resilience of the human spirit, especially the resilience of kids. Like, it's amazing that kids will figure out, okay, I don't have that resource. My mother isn't available to me in this way, or my father's not available to me in that way. I got to figure out how to get those needs met elsewhere. And you were able to kind of get this cast of characters who could 
support you as best as they as they could. And lots of people figure out how to do that. And it is so important. And actually, you know, the research shows what is most important is that you have one solid, stable person that you feel like gets you and who is who you're very connected with. It doesn't have to be a, a parent. It does not have to be a parent. Wow. Now, now, the trauma of losing a parent, mm-hmm. that's something that is different and that causes all sorts of other difficulties for people. But, but that need for bonding and attachment is so essential, and it does not have to be a parent. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that there are two pieces to it. There's the loss of the attachment, and then there's the ability to form attachment. Yeah. And those are two kind of separate things. When it comes to creating your own culture, creating your own tribe around you. One of the sayings that I think I had wrong for years and years and so many people do is that, you know, that saying blood is thicker than water. And we normally think of blood as like blood relatives. And I I found out a handful of years ago that water represents birth and blood is blood oaths or blood covenants. Hmm. So in some ways it is the relationships we choose to be in and the relationships we commit to are in some senses stronger than the ones we were born into. Wow, It's the reverse of how we've normally thought it. Oh, definitely. Sophia, the the beautiful uh, writing that you share with people about the confusion and the weirdness of coming to America. You were 11, right? I thought uh, it was 13. Was, yeah, I was well, 11 it, when we left, and then it took us about a year to immigrate. That's why. I mean, we were vetted for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but wow. would you describe some of that, the alienation that you yeah. must feel when it's kids who really look nothing like you, that, you know, there's yeah. there's a sense of your otherness that's so profound for those first few months in America, I can imagine. Yeah, and in general, I have to say, just the way that you know our current climate of, of putting you know children in cages and, and separating families, and um, saying that in certain countries people are you know are demons and rapists and such. That is something that we in the USSR went through. I mean, our country was demonized to no end. It was the USSR that came to the table asking for the end of Cold War. I mean, it was the USSR that was you know, the poor, the, like, you know, in, in that sense, like, of that macho culture, like, we were crying, crying uncle, like, we were not interested in that kind of engagement anymore under Gorbachev. And so I remember coming into this country with the kids watching Red Dawn and calling me like a godless commie pinko. <laughs> Wow. Blah, blah, blah. Like it was there's so much mm. hatred towards the, uh, communism in the Soviet Union to begin with. And I already don't look Russian, so I'm suspect and I'm Jewish. And, you know, my father's from the Caucasus region that's next to like Chechnya and, yeah. you know, all of these other places that we have a lot of prejudice towards in Azerbaijan. And so the prejudice was like so thick and so monumental. And I got here the the, um, the summer before seventh grade, which I guarantee you is probably one of the worst times to start anything let alone a new country exactly. where everybody hates you so and you're a true. girl, you know, on the verge of, you know, changing your body and your period and you don't have, you know, your mother around. You're separated from your mother. Right. You're not in a cage, but you were not explained to, you know, the mm-hmm. ambiguous loss that you have to encounter now. Mm-hmm. So it was the alienation was thick. So I get really triggered by things around um, getting like cut off or oh. exploited or left out of things. No yeah. doubt. No doubt. Um the part we haven't included for listeners that I think is really important is that Sophia's father 
fought for custody of Sofia, very unusual in the in the Soviet Union, and then took her without the mother knowing. Yeah. So I, in I, many I did wa- mention that, but that's true. Oh, you yeah. did? Okay. Yeah, so. he did. He won full custody. She was she lost her parental rights and in some in some ways he had the right to just take me, but that's not humane treatment of anybody. Did it feel like a kidnapping? Well, I mean, yes and no. I think everything in this book is like a yes and no. Like, did it feel good to come to America? Yeah. Yes oh and God, no. Did it so feel? True. Did it feel? Did it feel good that that I had a father who was loved me so much that, like, you know, stole me from this woman that he deemed bad? I mean, I think she just was always like, a, you know, like a fairy tale, like a figment of my imagination that I defended. And anytime I defended her, the cost was so high. And the way that we work in this country, like, we ask, like, why do all these white women vote for Trump? is because to align yourself with power to survive, even if it's gross, is something that we are predisposed to do as, as you know, as animals in, in fight or flight. And so I was in fight or flight. I just was going to align myself with the person who was going to feed me and take care of me. I also think that this, what Sophia does of being, uh, of allowing herself in the book and in the way that she presents herself now to say, look, it's not bad or good. Yeah, it's the yes and no part yeah. that I that I so respect in what you're saying. And even as you speak about your father, who has done objectively horrific things to yeah. you, you're able to sort of see this complete picture of a human being that is not only a caricature of somebody who is this abuser. And he also loves you. And he also sort of was a champion for you having a voice and a feminist voice. Yeah. And and so I think that ability is part of your resilience, is part of what has allowed you, even with the history that you have had, to be in this place. The, the ability to see yes and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You go back to mm. Russia after your kids are born, right? How old were your? No, no. Oh, was, they weren't. Okay. Yeah, it was way before. before. I went. I went back in two thousand and four. I had. Um, I had my first child in two thousand and eight. Yeah. Okay. How How old were you when you had this yearning to do this discovery of I need to put these puzzle pieces back together? I need to find my mother. Right. So that would be like such a great Odyssey story. Like I would be like, you know, I would just be like, you know, the heroine, the hero, right? right. We love the hero's journey. But I never had that urge, actually. Um, uh, I, I've, I've never encountered it. Um, and I and I kind of, I do not have it. But I mean, I but I yearned for her. And when I was 15 years old or so, I just remember, you know, bawling my eyes, eyes out and, and looking for pictures of her in my dad's desk drawer and finally coming to and being like, oh my God, like, I'm becoming a woman. Where's this woman? Mm. Um, and so I had those feelings, but I never actually really wanted to go. I just felt like I had to go. And enough people, you know, like we have a society with a set of norms and you go to college and you meet people and they say like, hey, what's your dad do? What's your mom do? And your answers are incongruent to everybody else's to the point where you are the only person you've ever heard of that can say, I do not know where my mother is. Uh And so I think I just got overwhelmed and tired and exhausted. And I think I got peer pressured into trying to figure this part out. Oh, interesting. And so I went in a way because just everything aligned just so like I, I was in grad school, becoming a therapist. I I learned enough and got enough resources to sort of like know that I won't totally fall apart if I go. I, you know, I had a nice boyfriend who wanted to go with me. I shouldn't have gone with him. I had some loan money and I had a summer off in between 
first and second year of grad schools, and I had been working at a domestic violence shelter, so I'd come to terms with a lot of the abuse that I dealt with. Wow. So I came kind of like armor, yeah. <laughs> armed for the mm-hmm. for the journey, but the journey was awful. I, I want I just <laughs> if you please read this book, Mother Winter, in terms of the way that you describe going back into how the Soviet Union is all about like mystical and the rules are so completely different and everybody believes in numerology and it's chaotic. And what I loved to tell you the truth is that the hero's journey really was not a hero's journey. Yeah. It was effed up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing went right. The Anti-Semitism was thick. You had to bribe everybody. I didn't know how to bribe anybody. And everywhere I went, there was just closed doors upon closed doors. People were were te- there. It was terror, right? People were terrified from after the fall of communism. People were being kidnapped. Their apartments were being stolen. You know, they got so used to violence and people lying to them. So when you show up on somebody's doorstep and like, oh, "Hi, I'm this grown woman looking for my mom. Can you can you let me in and and help me or let me look around?" I mean, it was just really difficult. And then on the other hand, like. Like, if there is, like, somebody with such severe alcoholism and and maybe few resources that was abandoned um, by so many people, is she alive? Is she even in the city? Was I was I just really kind of looking for a grave and not knowing how to? Mm. Um, so that could have been it. But really, the, the thing is about the book and, and that journey is about inconsolable loss and how we try to stage a different story about a before and an after because everybody wants to, you know— we can't seem to really let ourselves agree that we need a new normal and we can't adjust to that new normal. I want you guys to talk about that because um, I had a very similar, not, it's not very similar. It's not similar at all, but Sophie was very interested in going back to our childhood home where she grew up with her dad, whom she lost. And um, she has this image in her head that she's going to, they're going to open the door and say, come on in and let's go through the pictures of how things have changed. Right. Um, this gay couple opens the door and they go, they go, yeah, like we're not really. In <laughs> <laughs> it's I not their think... trauma. It's not their drama. <laughs> exactly, man. Yeah. And so not my I... circus, not my monkeys. Yeah. So I think there's something here for us to like share that we're not going to have the story made okay by other people. Well, uh, yes. And I think the opposite also happens. So I think what's really cool about what you're talking about is how much humans yearn to have a consistent story. Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like with it, in both of your cases, um, it was the idea was you might have this like beautiful picture and you really want life to match that beautiful picture. But some of the things that happen for some of the people that Brian and I work with is the story they have about themselves or other people or the world is it's all shit or I'm broken or uh, I'm crap. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we humans, just the way that the brain works, we really, really yearn to have information that is consistent with our story. Mm. And so even if our story is negative, it can be very jarring when we get information that's inconsistent with that story. Hmm. Yeah. And I think an oversimplified story oftentimes. Yeah, absolutely you know, oversimplified. That, that it has to be kind of clean and linear. Yep. Um, and the causes have to be really uh, out there and obvious. One of the things that I I love, Sophie, about your stories is that you've got um, like 
just this outrageously intense stuff that's happening and it's all sort of jumbled together and it doesn't fit a clear linear story at all. And yet here you are resilient, um, living life, right? Like doing your stuff and doing stuff that's really meaningful to you. And some of that is that both and that you were talking about the Mm -hmm. yes and the no, that's not clean, right? That's not sterilized, or whitewashed. It's messy. It's really, really messy. And I think sometimes when we try to come up with these stories that make sense of Mm -hmm. things, we're just sense making. Yeah. We're Mm -hmm. just coming up with a story and a narrative that's a a little oversimplified and a little clean. And I've said before, it's like, I don't really fundamentally know why I check my email. Like really, like fundamentally, I don't really understand why I would do something so benign. So how do I come up with a really for sure story about why I do kind of the harder things in my life or the more complicated things in my life. And I think some of that is you just sort of leave it messy. You leave it both and. The, mm. the structure for your book, how you, um, you go between what happened in Russia to feminist thought to poetry to, uh, I want you to talk about that structure because I think that it's so beautiful in terms of allowing in some ways, the messiness, the, the, the complicated nature of our lives to be on the page. Yeah. And I think also a good point to kind of relay about storytelling in general, I think, right. Storytelling is something that is folklore, right? Like something you're supposed to pass down, like maybe like mother to daughter, you know, grandmother to grand, great granddaughters, something in in that sense. So if, if I don't have it or, or if she, or if he don't have it, like, in a way, we have these libraries, right? And so for me, people like Marguerite Dura, who came, Duras, who came uh, before me, um, and, you know, other French uh, feminist thinkers and other people who wrote in ways that we perceive as fragmented, but are actually, like, way more um, substantive and um, mirroring of how we live life and how we talk, like, in that art form, I think I found a way Mm. to be useful, to come alive, to live, as you say. So for me, it would never have worked. Like I was not interested in just like putting out a book about my life, you know, like healing from my dad, forgiving my dad, chapter one, Um, you know, like Mm -hmm. so. just this is not interesting to me. Those are not the stories that I'm interested in reading. I don't read memoir because I need to know somebody's dirty details and how they overcame in this arc. And then in the end, you know, they found themselves and there's a pathos like for me I'm interested in literature I'm uh-huh. interested in how a piece of artwork a painting or whatever speaks and says something very different but pays homage to the fact that our eyes have absorbed and digested every single thing that came before yeah. us that we're a collectivized voice that we're not living in a dungeon that I have to be grateful to Marguerite and Anais Nin for existing because without them I wouldn't be this way so beautiful god yeah. that's great yeah the Same thing about like it I wish that I had about... like sound effects so I could go like what laser cheer <laughs> whatever it's true yeah. The fact that it isn't fragmented, I love that where you're like, it's not fragmented, it's substantive. And what looks fragmented is like, no, actually, that's just fucking reality. Yeah, That's just what it's like. That's just an indent versus no indent. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. You uh, say, uh, this is from Marguerite uh, 
Duran, right? Duran. Mm-hmm. Duran. When a woman drinks, it's as if an animal were drinking or a child. Alcoholism is scandalous in a woman, and a female alcoholic is rare, a serious matter. It's a slur on the divine in our nature. Mm-hmm. I want to talk because you believe you have such strong feminist writing. What is the divine in our nature? In a female nature, do you believe in that divine? Or do you think that it's like a lot of other things, a story that's been written primarily? By- no, I mean, it would be it would be divine if we had a matriarchy and, and women were, um, uh, you know... <laughs> Oh God! I don't even know if you can curse on this. But if 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 <laughs> if our if our space um, if our space and our and our right to be was you know valued and not stolen from us, and I say that with with love, like I love men, I, I date men, I've carried children for men, I've had abortions for men, I've done I, I I love men, I love my father, despite the fact that he was psychologically and and physically in a number of ways abusive, and I believe in the redemption of every man. I think everybody has a way to heal, to go see a therapist, to create community, to do better. Um, But that quote specifically says that women have a place in the world and that place is to either take care of us or go away. Mm, That's interesting. I wondered Mm. what I wondered why that was so why that because she's useless. She's a drunk. Uh We don't we have no use Mm. for her. Useless woman is a Uh dead woman. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. Mm. So your son today uh, grows up in this household. (laughs) (laughs) I love him so much, I'm going to eat him. (laughs) Me too. I feel that way when I get around little kids. Like, oh, my God, please watch the top of your head. I'm going to bite you (laughs) off. You're going to meet him soon. He goes to Chapman right by her house, so you're going to have to eat his little blonde hair. I would love it. Um, Are you able to have open discussions with him about the type of man that you want him to be? Yeah, we're starting to. and. When I did my um, article for Lit Hub about how to possibly just try not to raise um, a toxic boy in uh, you know in this realm of toxic masculinity again, I, I'm I'm not I don't have a god complex. I don't really believe that you could like raise like a perfect man or something. Yeah. Oh, my perfect little boy! I can just set examples. I can create a culture. I could set boundaries. I can have loving boundaries, and I can you know starve out the bad behavior and encourage and support and water the good behavior. Um, He has ADHD, like really intense ticks. Um, We've been in services one type of another, sometimes three at a time since he was four years old. Yeah. So so it's been a long journey for him. Meanwhile, my daughter is like, she's like 85 years old. Her favorite words are, um, I need space. You don't get to decide what's right for my body. And you interrupted me and that's not okay. And she's been talking like that since she was like two years old and I did not teach her that. She just speaks that way. And does everybody have what they need? You know, like, but my son is like, hello, I'm Jake. Boom. Like, drop the mic is dropped. So I am teaching. I think the thing that I'm trying to do with him, right, is to teach him that vulnerability, emotiveness, to string together words, that words are important, that maybe, maybe we've been taught that the feminine need words like air, but we need to communicate. We're animals that communicate through this, in this verbal way and Mm -hmm. obviously through touch but when he wants to grab his sister or hold her or squeeze her too hard that's not the language yeah, yeah. the language
much as may I please hug you, right? Got it. And yeah. just last night in the bath, we were just, I was just saying, you're you're turning 11 and, you know, coming up on 12, you're going to go through puberty. And we talked about what puberty is and about bodies and about, you know, pleasure in the body and privacy. It's just like at least normalizing these conversations mm-hmm. in a in a... I'm hoping in a productive and kind of peaceful way we'll give him something. But, you know, he's a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is, I think, a, a topic that a lot of parents right now are thinking about. How do we especially raise young boys into, into responsible men, into men who will share power, into men who give equity? What do you think about the, the manner in which Sophia is talking with her son? I love the idea. What what stuck in my mind was when you said starve out the bad behaviors, starve out the undesirable behaviors, and water the ones that you do want. Mm. I think the watering the ones that you do want feels so important to me because it feels like as a as a man, sometimes the toxic version of men ends up – the message that can be taken is – I just want to apologize for being male. And that isn't, that isn't actually the problem, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That there's a way to move around in the world that is uh, gracious and that's respectful uh, and that's engaged as a human in community that men can learn, right. you know? Absolutely. Um, so I really, really like that part. And I like sort of normalizing the experience, male or female, of what it is to sort of evolve and grow and change and all of that. But certainly watering the parts that you do want um, so that there's a really, really positive way to be a man as opposed to the less male you can be, the better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Right? I, 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 Him being a boy's fan, I'm boy crazy. Like, as a matter of fact, Same. like, actually boy crazy. <laughs> There's nothing that I want to starve out about that. I just, I want a boy crazy situation where, like, the boy just does no harm and Absolutely. shares power <laughs> and recognizes systemic oppression. And Perfect. so if I could just help him in that direction, I mean, he's already so gentle and delicious and sweet. And yeah. th- there's nothing wrong with that. That's no, not absolutely. male or female. We just assigned it so so that so that the people who take care of the stuff for free can just go on doing it. Totally. <laughs> um, last time I talked with Sophia, and I want to just end on this, we were talking about our favorite candidates, and Sophia said something that I thought was so extraordinary. I wanted you guys to think about a little bit, that we need to start um, supporting candidates who are caring for the caregivers. Yes. It's never a stump I've never heard that said. Somebody leading out with a big band saying, we're going to actually begin caring for the people who care for us. And later I was thinking, that in and of itself, if we put that as a guiding principle for a campaign, would increase the number of males who started caring about the caregivers. Jenna, I just want you, because I I love your sort of summary thoughts on this to go ahead. Yeah, I think that is absolutely beautiful and I would expand have us all sort of expand what we think of as caregiver caregiver is not only mothers although they are the ones who are doing the vast majority of the caregiving at least in our country but caregiving like also be thinking about our planet like this planet like like cares for us. It's the thing that keeps us alive. Yeah. And we need to, in addition, we need to pay attention to all of the things and humans that are caring well for us, mothers, the workers, 
the the earth, the people who don't have a voice. Teachers. Absolutely. Teachers. 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 Yes. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes and sometimes fathers, depending Absolutely. on their role in the family. Oh, yeah. yeah. Totally. And, and male teachers. I mean, that's the thing. It's like we haven't really mm-hmm. um, uh, monetized uh, and created the competitive drive within the nurturing professions. Absolutely. And uh-huh. so, like, if we really, really paid attention to the fact that we have to support the caregiver, a.k.a. like give them back the value that they give yeah. us yeah. Right. and um, put more people in, in those positions that that have had the proper training. I was just even thinking about like how the daycare system could run better. I mean, like there are so many ways, like the Helen Gordon Center here at PSU, like their model, the training model there of having you know, a master's teacher at the top and then having someone who only has their you know BA uh, as, the, as the co and then the students coming in and constantly learning and then seeing, oh, okay, well, she gets paid $12 an hour. I'm sorry. I just learned how to raise a human being properly, how to teach them what my daughter said. You know, you don't get to decide what's from my body. How can that person get $12 $12 an hour? hour. Let's just start there, right? It's valuing caregiving. Totally. Yeah, that's a better better way to say it. Elevating nurturance. There's nothing else. So yeah, I, I'm going right. to I'm going to help the candidates who decide that this is their platform come up. Oh, with like their, Elizabeth Warren, yes, yeah, please. exactly. Yeah. Bumper yeah. stickers. Thank you. Yeah, Sophia. I, once again, I'm going to call it the book Mother Winter by Sophia Shamia. It's so beautiful and Thank so powerful, so and I love your writing in the world. Please keep doing it. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank, Thank you guys. Yeah. Thanks for awesome. coming. Thanks Thank so you. much, yes. Sophia. Thank you guys. Thanks yeah. for listening. If you want to learn more about the ideas you heard today and find more resources, go to our website at Beyond well with SheilaHamilton.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please like us on iTunes or wherever it is you listen. Also Podbean. Podbean people, hello, we're here.